Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. Phyllis Fagel is our guest, and she's amazing. We are such big fans of hers. She wrote the book, Middle School Matters. And so we're going to talk about middle school and all about how the pandemic is affecting and will affect kids this coming year when it comes to how school works. We are going to share what we wish we had known when our oldest went to middle school, because we did get better with each kid. So we started to be the ones who did know. But that first time, you just don't really know. All right, before we get to that, let's talk about us, because doesn't everyone want to hear about us? Because there's so much newness going on, I feel like. Well, there is. Like, how you know can we, we possibly keep... update people on everything that's going on? No, but there is some truth because we keep like kind of repositioning ourselves so that we can like dissect something new about ourselves. So the thing that we're going to dissect today is what are we wearing during this time in COVID? And it, the conversation started because Stephanie thought she should purge everything except the things she's been wearing. And Hannah, our producer, and I thought maybe in the middle of a pandemic, it wasn't a good idea to purge the clothes that you used to wear before quarantine. Yeah, because it seems it seems like superfluous when I'm wearing the same, like four items, literally. And not only, I would say not only four, first of all, I will own this, but like I go out for a walk, I come home. And like when my kids were home, they would just have to leave the room because I really sweat a lot. <laughs> um, and I will wear the same thing the next day if I'm going to walk by myself because- well, I think you can only walk by yourself if you want. Yeah, no, it's totally true. <laughs> it's totally true. But the thing yeah. is, I just don't, I don't have enough clothes that mm. fit that category because I didn't have as much time or need to, like I walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, th- there's very little laundry to do with just- Dan and I home because even with even when I'm doing an interview or I have a meeting, I often yeah. just put on the same sweater shirt that I wear. Exactly. Well, that's why I was just saying when I was staring at my closet because I'm in my bedroom podcasting and I'm staring at my closet and I'm thinking, why is all that in there? It just feels like so even so, and I, this goes back to my whole thing with COVID. I I'm no different. I'm not a different person than I was pre-COVID. I'm just an exaggerated version of myself. And so I always thought like, it was time to start getting rid of things. So now like all of that is like, oh my God, I must get rid of everything, right? It's just taken on like a whole new meaning, but I'm looking at all the stuff that hasn't been worn and thinking, why do I have it? But well, because you-, you might go to a wedding again and you might go to a business meeting again and yes. you might actually just wake up in the morning and not want to wear sweatpants. <laughs> it's That's a true. I'm very, well, right. And I'm very comfortable. I'm wearing like all of these athletic skirts that I love and they're so cozy and just like a t-shirt. And I have, like you said, like you have an interview or something, you know, I have literally two things that I switch between when I have business meetings and, you know, my upper half is going to be showing, but I'm so comfortable. Like I'm literally sitting on my floor right now in my skirt. Like it's just, it's so cozy. Have you had any experiences where like you're in a Zoom call and there's been that moment? Like I had one, I had a Mm. camp reunion one and a woman's husband walked behind her. There wasn't much clothing on. There should have been a lot of clothing on. And we all were like, do we put it in the chat or not? Like, do you just acknowledge that you saw too much of someone's stuff and you didn't really need to? Okay, are you not remembering our mentor call the other day? Did we have someone on our call? We were on our call. Your husband came home, but you said, oh, I got to turn off my, you had the podcast to turn off. No, no, no. I'm laughing because you were like, you, it's the story where you have to remember. So you're like, oh, got to go off camera. Cause you're like, oh, 
Dan's coming in from the nursing homes. He strips down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's not really what I meant to share. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dan. <laughs> Hannah can take it out. Hannah can take it out. Uh, yeah, you could leave it in. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah, but have you been on funny. any calls where like something? No. no. Really? No, unless I, bit, wait a minute. It's kind of <laughs> like people say like, if there's an asshole in the family and you don't know who the asshole is, it's you. So in that same way, I'm going to say, unless I was the one. Well, good for you because it's a really unnerving thing. Like I, I was in, I was in more than one because in the beginning people just didn't understand what you could see. Yeah. So it was this call, and the woman was—I don't know where she lived, but it was—it was like nighttime for her, so she was in her bed, but her husband was in her bed next to her, and it just felt so. Yeah, you like, were in their bedroom. What? Yeah. Yeah. You were in their bedroom. That's so like, weird. Yeah, but it would have been okay if it were just her. It might have felt yeah. okay. But like, I don't know. I didn't like it at all. Okay, so let's move into the conversation about what we're going to talk to Phil Fagel about. When we were bantering, I was remembering the story of when my oldest was in seventh grade. Cell phones were kind of new, like a newish thing. And a friend had passed a girl, so funny thinking back, a girl had lifted her shirt, but she had on like her training bra. It was like wearing a bikini, right? But she had lifted her shirt. It's like early sexting. Had lifted her shirt, sent that picture to a boy. And then that boy sent it to my son. And I found it on Zach's phone. And I remember I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And it was kind of like our interview we just did. Um, <laughs> I was like, sorry, our producer just put a very funny thing in the chat. So now we're laughing. So apparently early sexting is it will be the new um, phrase. Yes, early sexting. You know what I should call him? An early adopter. <laughs> they say that like in, in products, he was an early adopter of sexting. I'm sure he's really going to appreciate this. I'm sure he's this. so happy. Yeah. yeah. He's so happy. So anyway, it's 10 years ago, right? Yeah, 10 years ago. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, like you go from that to like, oh my God, he's going to jail. He, his whole life is ruined. His, you know, the whole thing. And I remember, I remember telling See you. our next interview with yes, Tyler. Exactly. <laughs> Writing their stories before they happen. So I remember calling the therapist and calling Sue, because it's kind of the same thing. And I was like, oh my God. And they both said the same thing. And I remembered the wording, Sue. You both said it was the perfect failure. And I thought to myself, are you kidding me? Like, this is awful. This is so awful. And I'm like, no, no. Like, you, one, it didn't come directly to him. He was kind of like this byproduct. So it certainly came to him. So like he has ownership in it, but it's the perfect conversation. And in hindsight, and I, I'd like to think way before this 10-year mark, I realized that it was because it opened a conversation. And so in answer to the, what do I wish I had known? I wish I had known there's a lot of leeway and latitude is the word I use that like in middle school because they are changing so rapidly and there is so much to learn and they're actually listening at that point versus high school, you know? And so I wish with that firstborn, I would have known everything is just ammunition for conversations is what I would say. I wish I had known that. Okay. So I have so many things I wish I would have known and some of them really reflect poorly on me. And since I want to put out there that I was a good parent and still am, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pick the one that doesn't make me look quite so bad, but I do really wish that I knew that friendships were volatile in middle school Mm. developmentally, like they need to be. Because if every day you show up testing on a new face and a new personality and trying to see like what uniform fits well on you and who do you want to be in the future? And if if I knew that was imperative to figure out who you want to be as as a person in life, I would have looked at those moments so differently. Like they were so painful for me 
to see friendships that I was invested in way too much. I loved the friendship. I loved mm-hmm. the kids. And to see those friendships fracture, I was as devastated as my daughter and didn't do her any service in handling it that way. Like to be able to step back and say, this is what's supposed to happen. I feel like I knew better with the the, uh, the kids after her to say, you know what, that it happens. It hurts and it mm-hmm. feels like a loss, but it happens and it happens to everybody. And my firstborn did not get the benefit of that perspective. This goes back to something, Sue, you and I have talked about a billion times. My firstborn's a boy, Sue's firstborn is a girl. And I often wonder how those stories play out when first-time parent combined with first daughter, I think is a very unique experience. And I find that my, and most of my friends, because my first was a boy, most of them have boys because that's how we kind of gravitated towards each other. And those friendships are different. And I think the experiences of the boys are different. I would love, I'm fascinated by this because I do think it's really different when that firstborn is a girl. I think I want to interview someone about it and just dive. I'll tell you, like, I know it's entirely different because I invested in those relationships as if they were mine. Yeah. So as a, I I mean, one of the things that I don't necessarily want to own up to, but I will right now is that having a girl in middle school when you don't really understand developmentally what's going on, can bring you right back to being a girl in middle yeah. school. And so all of those relationships and all of those those emotional hurdles that were taking place, I was right back in there with her. Yeah. And what was, what the healthiest thing is to be a little removed from it, maybe a lot removed from it, and able to kind of reflect on what's going on for your kid instead of being in the weeds with them. So I don't think that I've never felt that way about my my son's friendships. I love them. I love those kids, but they, you know, like I'll feel sad if they end, but this was devastating. Yeah, yeah, just very different, very different. Up next is our conversation with Phyllis Fagel, the author of Middle School Matters. We can't wait for you to join us. everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be, but we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent, or have been in the game for a while. We invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. Today's guest, Phyllis Fagel, is the author of Middle School Matters. She's a frequent contributor to the Washington Post, focusing on counseling, parenting, and education, and writes the Meaningful Middle column for the Association of Middle-Level Educators, She also has written for Psychology Today, Working Mother, Time, and of course, 
your teen for parents. Hi, Phyllis. Hi, nice to see you again. Oh, always such a treat. So we asked parents to share their top concerns about middle school in 2020. We're going to break them into academic questions and social questions. So first, we're going to start with academics. Some schools are asking parents to stay away, to back off, let their kids have the same experience of owning their middle school experience without you hovering. And that's so easy to do when you are, you're sending your kid off to school and you're not seeing them. But it's really, really hard when they're in your space. How do we deal with that as parents? Well, you just made me think about a comment that one of my own middle schoolers made last spring when we first went to remote learning. And she was really frustrated that her mother was leaning over her shoulder. And she said, parents are supposed to come to the school for assemblies and for parent-teacher conferences, maybe a birthday party celebration here and there. They are not supposed to be at school with you all day long. It was really frustrating for this particular kid. So first, I think developmentally parents need to understand that when they're hovering over their kid, they're robbing them of that autonomy, that independence. They're sending a signal that they don't think their child can do it on their own. And they're also missing this opportunity for their child to make mistakes during a phase that's pretty low stakes. These are not grades that are going to follow them for the rest of their lives. This is the perfect time to figure out what are the elements that have to be in place for them to be successful in school. And so parents can play a role in that. Parents can make sure they have the supplies they need. They can make sure they have an uncluttered study space, that there isn't a parakeet. I once had a parent-teacher meeting where everyone was trying to problem-solve why this child was having trouble getting their homework done, and it came out in the middle of this meeting that the child was studying next to a talking parakeet who would just start mimicking whatever was going on in the house the entire time. And the solution, of course, was to remove the parakeet or to move the child. And so those are the kinds of welcome interventions that a parent can do. They can even quiz them if there's something that they need to review. They can help them understand directions. That's also appropriate. If they don't understand, they can help them communicate with a teacher if that's something they're not yet able to do on their own. But the one thing that you don't want to do is to be standing there nagging your kid, making it unpleasant, or doing the work for them. That's even worse. I love what you just said, because oftentimes we're given these like all or nothings. It isn't an all or nothing. Don't hover over your kid. But if they come asking for help, occasionally it's appropriate. Yes. And we also have to recognize that every child is different. So if you have a kid who's got ADHD or who has major executive functioning deficits and no middle schooler has good executive functioning, and in fact, future planning, which is the ability to predict how your work today will impact What happens in the future doesn't even kick in until age 15. So all middle schoolers need some help with organization. But hopefully the school is using planners, the school is using reminders and working with your child to pick up those skills. If they're at home for remote learning, this might be a time where you can help them with timers, with writing lists of to-do, notes of to-do lists. But you want to make sure you're doing it with their buy-in, that that is support that's welcomed by them. That's excellent. Who is most at risk for academic loss that cannot be made up? So I love that question because I can feel the anxiety 
coming through my computer screen right now. And what I want to really reassure this parent is that there is no academic deficit that can't be made up. And there is no right place for a child to be right now. Teachers are prepared to meet kids where they are, and they are all over the place. There are kids who've had zero access to instruction. There are kids who didn't have the needed interventions. There are kids who have learning challenges, and teachers are going to have to help them get to whatever that next place is academically. So you you addressed a little bit about helping our kids with time management skills and like this idea of school life balance, because the day, especially if it's asynchronous, you've just got the whole day ahead of you. There's a certain assumption in that conversation that we as adults own those skills to be able to impart them to our kids. So if we're not in a position to do that, how do we help them? You know, I think it's really helpful to start with yourself and to acknowledge what you're not doing or putting into place for yourself. And I've been advising educators, parents to come up with policies for themselves. And a policy could be anything. It could be, I don't check email after eight o'clock or I wait 12 hours before I respond to an email or I start my day at X time. Whatever it is, it's about setting some boundaries around your day because otherwise everything can bleed together. And particularly for teachers who are working out of their own home, there really is no clear demarcation between work and home. And it's exactly the same for working parents. And it's exactly the same for kids. And so a parent can be really authentic and say, this is something I'm working on. I all of a sudden realized I never shut down. I'm always partially on, which means I'm constantly in this state of either worrying about something I haven't done working on something or worrying that there's something I've forgotten and it's starting to wear me down. And so here's what I'm going to do to help myself with that. What do you think would help you? I've noticed you also have a really hard time setting clear limits on your school day. How can we help you create that same set of playtime versus school time versus social time? Oh, that's great. And it's an excellent segue to our next question, which is tips to avoid Zoom fatigue. And I will be listening very closely is all I'll say. (laughs) Yeah, Zoom fatigue is real. And I think that that's on a lot of parents' minds, especially in states that are mandating a certain amount of synchronous learning. And so you have kids who are Zooming directly three and a half, four and a half hours a day. Teachers are going to be mindful of this. They also don't want to be spending that much time on Zoom and they recognize it's not developmentally appropriate. And so hopefully the teachers will be in part doing things like breakout rooms and offline activities. But if you're looking at a screen, there are a few things that are going on for a middle schooler. One is they are trying to learn while looking at their image at a time when they're most acutely sensitive and most vulnerable and most worried about their appearance. And so that is a distraction in and of itself. And there's been a lot of debate about whether or not kids should be required to have the camera on. And I loved a comment from, it was a school counselor out in California who said, I can always tell when a middle schooler has had enough because suddenly she aims her camera toward the ceiling And that is the signal that she's had enough. I had a student who was not, I couldn't see them visually. And it's really hard. And I understand this. It's really hard as the adult to not have that feedback, to not feel as engaged. You don't know if they're off texting or if they're asleep. You don't know if they're engaged in a lesson. You know, people really are looking for that feedback to see how you're doing and to check their understanding. And I said to this 
student who I have a really good relationship with, you know, it's, it's hard for me when I can't see you. Would you be comfortable turning on your camera so I can see your face? And she said, the face isn't the problem. It's the hair, which is so middle school, right? So I think we have to just keep in mind, it's not just Zoom fatigue for them. It, yes, it's Zoom fatigue in the same way we feel Zoom fatigue, but it's also this relentless looking at your own image and worrying how you stack up to everyone else and wondering if you're looking funny. If you look at a, a Zoom room full of middle schoolers, particularly younger ones, fifth and sixth graders, some of them are making faces because they're kind of like looking at how their faces change when they make different expressions on the camera. So there's a lot of challenges. And I think some of it is getting to know yourself and also maybe taking a break and making sure you're not just sitting there all day long. And perhaps you, uh, some kids might need an accommodation if it's required to be on screen that they can turn it off periodically. I don't think anyone should be off all of the time if possible, just to be able to connect and participate. But maybe they have to work their way up. It might be that they have to be on camera for seven minutes and then off camera for a little bit and then get back on. Okay, our next series of questions are about social issues. But before we get there, I just want to ask you, before the pandemic, how often did you use the words synchronous and asynchronous? So <laughs> never, and not only I don't know who to attribute this to, but why are we using language that middle schoolers and kids don't use? Instead of using synchronous and asynchronous, we should be using live and on-demand. I think live and on demand would make more sense than synchronous and asynchronous in their world because we want to be going into their world. In my world too, no one used those words before what? COVID. I think that's perfect. That's perfect. I just have to stop and think about it. I'm like, wait, asynchronous. Which one? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so we're going to move into the social life of middle school kids. For kids who are only virtual, how are they going to develop those social skills that Middle school, you know, it can be the best of times and the worst of times, but they're kind of missing that whole experience. You know, it's it's funny. I got a direct message or a, actually a tweet from someone I don't know who said to me, help, my daughter has three best friends and she's in seventh grade and all three of her best friends are in cohort B and she's in cohort A and she's already panicked and worrying that she's going to be left out. What should we do? So one thing we want to keep in mind as we're thinking about kids' socialization, as we're thinking about remote versus in-person or live versus on-demand, <laughs> is that kids have all of the same developmental needs and insecurities, no matter how they're learning, no matter how they're socializing. What's different right now is that their sensitivity is heightened because they aren't getting the visual cues in the same way. Even Zoom has a bit of a delay, so you can miss a little bit of the context. They aren't having these opportunities to make up in person the next day if they get in a little bit of a fight. If somebody is just kind of lost in their own world, which many of us have had that COVID fog, whether we're an adult or a kid and just isn't as social for a while, they may have a friend out in the ether who's wondering if that person has written them off forever. Because in the absence of those interactions, it can feel like maybe it's intentional. And so we need to be reminding kids frequently that there this is a time period where they're going to be more sensitive, where it's easier to have miscommunication, where we have to follow up and ask more questions to ensure we understand the tone and to really assume positive intent, which is something I always work with middle schoolers to do anyway, because the cultural rhetoric is that there are these like 
mean, horrible kids. And that gets in the way of their ability to trust themselves. And so I want them to start from that place of trust. And being virtual makes it harder for them to trust one another. They don't have those little moments where somebody is supporting one another, where someone says, oh, do you want to come sit next to me in the cafeteria? Or, hey, what do you do over the weekend? It's just so much more artificial. And in terms of the social skills themselves, And this has been a source of stress for a lot of parents, particularly the ones whose kids are not socializing that much online. We want to be making sure they're talking to somebody. It doesn't necessarily have to be a same age peer, but every few days at least, maybe they can FaceTime or Skype or Zoom with somebody, whether it's a grandparent or a cousin or a friend, just to make sure they are practicing those social skills in some capacity. And there are some areas, and I've been talking to a lot of physicians about this because I really feel it's so important that kids have opportunities to connect in person and to even touch if it's possible. So I've been asking infectious disease physicians, what can kids do? Is it okay for them to have a socially distanced bike ride where they're wearing masks? You know, what, where is that limit? And most of them are saying, you know, there, it's gradations of risk. There's never no risk, but it's gradations of risk. And there might be opportunities for parents to allow their kids to socialize in safe ways that is not through a screen. And particularly now, while the weather is nice, that might be something we want to be trying to make happen for them. As teens can be together again, will there be another difficult transition, you know, maybe the opposite to isolation, you know, coming back the other way? What do you foresee there? All of the normal middle school emotions only amplified. So if kids are normally unsure of where they fit in in the hierarchy, if they're not quite sure where their peer group is, if they're struggling with shifting peer groups, which happen all of the time in middle school, add to that the stress of the pandemic, all of the uncertainty about whether or not they might even have to go back into remote learning again, all of the shifting dynamics that would have happened anyway, but on top of the sensitivity they were experiencing during the remote learning. And I think that kids are going to be feeling very vulnerable, very insecure. They're going to need a lot of help re-engaging with one another, maybe more structured activities in the school setting, more teamwork-oriented activities, more inclusive activities, just to get them back in the groove. I also think we will see a lot of kids be overstimulated and have a hard time doing a full day of school. I spoke to a head of school in Australia who, they're six months ahead of us, so they've already gone. They went remote when the pandemic hit, They went back to hybrid in-person learning with masks, socially distanced, and then they had a spike in cases and went back to remote learning. And one of the anecdotes he shared with me is that there were some kids, and these were not kids who had any issues with, with being too stimulated in school before, but when they came back, the zero to 100 that was involved with being home all day to interacting 24-7, it seemed like, with their peers was too much. And some of them had to do a partial day to re-enter. So that overstimulation could become an issue as well. So PBS did a program called Being 10 in, in 2020, and they interviewed a bunch of 10-year-olds, which like, you know, when your kids get older, 10 seems so young, but these kids were so wise And a little heartbreaking because the common theme was this feeling of not belonging. What I want to put out there for you is, is that a developmental feeling that you need to live through? 
I mean, because what you want to do when you hear these stories is fix it for these kids, find groups for them to be in where they, you know, like have parents come in and say, well, they don't fit in there, so we should put them here. But maybe at the end of the day, is that a crossover into another stage of growing? I think as parents, it's typical. Most parents want to make their kids world perfect and protect them from all pain. And that's becoming increasingly difficult right now because the odds are so stacked against that happening. And I wonder if that's actually a silver lining because our job is not to protect our kids from disappointment. Our job is to help our kids recover when they experience disappointment. And that's a significant distinction because there's no way we can protect them from having hardship. And there's no way we can ensure that they never hit bumps in the road. But what we can do is teach them how to manage those bumps when they occur. There's research out of Emory University that shows that the number one predictor of well-being in children is that they hear about their own family members who have what's called oscillating narratives. They didn't go from seventh grade to success. They maybe started a business that failed, or they were, they were the first in the family to go to college. And we want to be telling our kids those stories. And we can also find examples of that in biographies, in literature, in history. Because right now, and I was talking to an author named Bruce Feiler, who wrote a book called Life is in the Transitions. And it's just stuck with me all summer because he thinks that the Gold star silver lining of this pandemic is that our kids are going to, at a young age, have to develop these transition skills, have to learn how to bounce back from mistakes, from disappointments in a way that they that some adults haven't yet learned how to do. And given how much of our life is spent in transition, it could be a hidden gift from all of this. Now, I tried telling that to one of my own kids, full disclosure. And I said, you know, there are some gifts here. I was talking to somebody who said that we have an opportunity to to develop self-awareness, to really sit with our own thoughts. And he looked at me and he said, no one needs to think this much. (laughs) So That's a great line. (laughs) How how old is he? This was my 17-year-old. So, (laughs) yeah. That's one of those pandemic lines you have to write down. It is a total pandemic line. My, my other favorite pandemic comment was from a kid when I asked her where another kid was who I thought was going to be showing up for the group. And I said, is she okay? I, she always comes. Why isn't she here today? Do you know? Have you checked in with her? And this girl said, she's quarantined good, just like the rest of us. And quarantine good is essentially good enough. Given the circumstances, we're good enough. And, and that might be the best we can hope for right now. I think we should get rid of asynchronous, but we could use quarantine good. Yes. That's a good one. Yeah. And it's from a kid. So we're allowed. (laughs) How about the inevitable middle school meltdown that happened pre-COVID and are certainly happening at a heightened degree during COVID? How to handle those? Well, first you have to understand why they're having that meltdown. Number one, it's really hard to be a tween. You're experiencing so many changes. You're going through puberty possibly. And add on top of that, your entire life has been turned inside out. And at the exact time that you're supposed to be pulling away from your family and spending more time with peers, you're stuck 24 seven with these parents. And I personally think I'm awesome, but my seventh (laughs) grader needs a lot of space. And 
we have to honor that. And I think that what what I've been hearing is that kids are having these meltdowns most often when they don't have enough space. So it could be that the parent is personalizing that they're going off into their room and is bugging them to do something or trying to get them to engage more with the family. And the child is just thinking, I need, I just need some time to myself. I need a break. And we can avoid a lot of the meltdowns if we start from that place of empathy where we're constantly reminding ourselves and acknowledging that this is really hard for kids in this age group to manage in a way that's different. I, I've been saying for a while now that I think middle schoolers are the hardest hit through this pandemic because for a lot of reasons. Number one, older teens have been socializing virtually for a lot longer. Number two, older teens have a far more consistent and predictable peer group and they're better at reading their own emotions and knowing how to support their friends. So they have a built-in support network. They've done a lot of that hard work of going through puberty already. With younger kids, they're not as put off by the parent's support and welcome it in a different way. And then in the middle, you've got these tweens who at the exact time they need to be separating are just being tossed into this world where they're not sure if they can manage the work in this way. They're not sure if their friendships will survive. They have too much togetherness, too much time to think. This is probably not an age when you want to just be sitting in your head the whole time. So if parents are really empathetic and give them the space that they need, I think we'll see fewer meltdowns. When the meltdown comes, you don't want to be lobbing a barrage of questions at them. What's wrong? What's going on? Why are you acting like this? What's happening? It's okay to say, I can see you're really upset. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to calm down. It's even better if you know why they're upset and you can validate it. I'd be pretty upset if I was not invited to the Netflix party. I probably would be having a meltdown if that were happening to me at 12 too. So I'm here to talk to you when you're ready. But kids, when they're firing from their amygdala and they're in that fight flight part of their brain, this is true for kids of any age, they're not in problem solving mode. They're not going to be reasonable and rational. And so you're better off waiting until they're calmer. And then you can circle back and say, what could we, you can problem solve with them. What could we do to make you feel better? Or what could you try next time? That approach so never worked in my house. That was like, (laughs) that was literally pouring like oil onto a fire. I mean, it just exploded. If you gave them time. If I said, you know what, it doesn't seem like we're being productive here right now. Like, let's both take a break. Oh my God. It was like just the most incensed they could, five for five. It's like the most (laughs) incensed. But we don't have, we can move on. We don't have to do it. I was just going to add though that I think that I always like the metaphor of emotions being like a train going through a tunnel. The only way out is through. And some kids, what they really need to do is to express them and get them out. And you might have that breed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this is a really set up, good setup for the next question, which is, it's not a COVID question, but maybe there's a sensitivity to this. Like, so there's two parts to this. The question is your house rules are different and you're being very strict, for example, about COVID and all the rest of the friend group is meeting together at someone else's house. So, so two parts to this. One is the, you know, all my friends are doing something and that we deal with all the time with our kids. But the other is like, if they're already in middle school, so ill-equipped to handle the social change and, and the inability to grow during this time, do we kind of like maybe be a little more flexible in what we might otherwise be more rigid about? 
that came up a lot for me in my role as a school counselor. And I picked up a lot of new quarantine words as a result. I had one fifth grader or sixth grader say to me, you know, I feel really excluded. And I said, how come? And she said, everybody is double bubbling without me. And double bubbling was, she explained, cluster quarantining, which is essentially what you're talking about. And it's pandemic FOMO. So it's the same FOMO that kids are experiencing all of the time, but it's the 2020 version. And it's in many ways the equivalent of a parent saying you can't go to a party at that kid's house. It's just tailored to the to this particular time. And what I would work with the kid and the parent on in those situations is, well, let's identify what you are comfortable with doing, because that is hard. Now, if this other family is taking risks that are that you're not comfortable with, or you have somebody in your house that is medically fragile and you really cannot let them do that, figure out what it is you can do. So in that particular case with that kid, the parent didn't want them doing play dates with these other kids, but decided she was okay with her going on bike rides with other kids in the neighborhood and getting outside in the neighborhood. It wasn't perfect. And we gave the child a space to vent and talk about it. And the parent validated how she felt and said, I know this isn't what you want and I'm sorry. And I feel bad that we have to do this and it's not what I want for you, but this is what we have to do to keep our family healthy and safe. And we're all going to have to do this differently. And there are going to be people who are stricter and there are going to be people who are not as strict, but this is not going to last forever. And I think that language of when we do something again, as opposed to if we do something again, is so important just to helping kids maintain that optimism. If your friends are playing without you and hanging out without you, even if it's only for a few months, it just feels like that is it. That's it. You're going to be excommunicated from the group. You're done. And when you come back, you're not going to be able to hang out together. So another thing that I recommend kids do is to confess to their friends what they're worried about. And so in the, in the example of the parent who said that her child was worried because she wasn't with the same in the cohort as her three best friends, I said, well, first, you know, it's possible it won't be as painful because it's virtual because they were doing remote learning. But I also said to her, why don't you have your daughter tell her friends how she's feeling, which, by the way, also works with jealousy, because what typically happens is the kids you're confessing that to, once you show that vulnerability, they really bend over backwards for the most part to make you feel better. And so sometimes just admitting what it is that you fear the most can be very helpful and healing for the kid. That made me get a little teary. That's such a beautiful way to approach it. All right, Phyllis, last question for you. We ask all of our guests, what is the biggest myth about middle school students? The biggest myth is that middle schoolers are mean and drama seeking. And I repeat that myth all of the time because I think it is so damaging to kids. It impacts how they experience middle school. It impacts how much they trust their friends. It impacts how they feel about themselves. They really internalize this idea that I'm not a nice person because I'm a middle schooler. And it impacts how people parent their child. So if you're a parent whose kid is going to middle school and you have only heard the negative rhetoric about middle schoolers, and by the way, if you ask middle schoolers, every single one of them has seen the movie Mean Girls. So they really are pummeled with this stereotype. Parents believe that they tend to take this giant step backwards at the middle school years when kids need them just as much as they always needed them 
but only in a different way. And it makes them dread the phase. They just don't want to get involved. They want to just wait it out and hope it's over quickly. And when you do that, you miss this perfect opportunity when the stakes are low in that kids can make tons of mistakes and they're still forming their values and they're becoming who they are. But it's kind of the last best chance because you can still get in there and really impact what kind of person you're turning out in a way that you can't once they hit high school. And they really need coaching. They just don't want you hovering. You know, you, the first question you asked me was, should they be watching their kids do their homework? And this is kind of the other side of that. We don't want either extreme. We don't want them hovering over them and telling them what to do. We want them developing those problem-solving skills on their own. But we do want them there to create the scene, make sure they have the supplies they need, make sure they have the coaching that they require to navigate all of these bumps in the road and the disappointments that are going to come. And unfortunately, when we communicate to kids and to everyone really that middle schoolers are mean and drama seeking, that has the opposite impact on them. Phyllis Fagel, thank you so much for being here with us. It's always a treat to get to talk to you and you always shed light on middle school kids and how lovable they can be if we look at them differently. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 